Welcome, everyone. Page six, the pursuit of happiness. I have a theory that midlife crisis begins very early in life. That what ultimately flowers, blooms into what we call midlife crisis actually has its roots very early on. Certainly in early to mid-twenties, perhaps before. Now, why do I say that? Because it's early on in life that we begin to form our dreams and our visions about the way things should, should be, the way things should go for our lives. Very often, these dreams and visions for the way things should go are unspoken. We haven't perhaps written out a plan. We perhaps haven't articulated this very clearly to ourselves or to other, others. But in our idle moments, it's what we envision. It's what we think about. We see uh, images of others, and we say, I'd like to be that when I'm 40, when I'm 45. And what happens is you get to be about midlife crisis is defined roughly between 35 and 45 is when it, when it really happens. But why? Why at around 35? Because at about age 35, it becomes very clear that I'm either going, I'm moving in that direction or it's never going to happen. And that realization can be crushing for a lot of people. I'm now at 35, I'm now at 40, and these things that I thought were going to fulfill me are apparently not going to happen. It's not in the cards is the way we think of it. And as a result, we can go through a funk. And the way people react to that then gives rise to all sorts of things that happen to folks in that time frame, uh, like I need a new spouse maybe. Maybe that'll get me out of this funk. And so it's not unusual for somebody to leave his wife or wife leave her husband, look for some excitement in, in someone else. You know, I need a new, I need a new career. Uh, I need a new car. I was joking about the Corvette, but we all know the joke about the person who we joke, you know, somebody got their midlife crisis car, right? To help get them out of, this is the thing that's going to be the ticket for me. It's a very common malady but I'm convinced that it begins very early on when we are forming our dreams and entertaining our visions about the way things, the way things ought to go. When we talk about our dreams, we really mean our hopes and our desires. What I hope will happen, what I desire to, to happen. And so we, we talk about things like the American what? The American dream. And what's the American dream involved? It involves a, you know, a, picturesque house and a picturesque family in a picturesque subdivision or perhaps with nobody around, a bunch of land around you <laughs> so you don't have to be bothered by people. But, it's, but notice it's, it's, it's material things or it's relationships, this, this picturesque family, both of which, both of which can change tomorrow. I've put my dream in someone or something that can be radically altered tomorrow. If it's achieved at all. Now what? The American dream, my dream, people talk of my dream house. Our dream vacation. My wife and I... Uh, 
went to Florida a few years ago and stayed in this really cool uh, condo that is more expensive than we could afford if we had not agreed. You guys know about this, right? You do the two-hour pitch. If you agree to hear the two-hour pitch, then you get your four nights for 250 bucks total. So that's what we did. So we stayed in this palatial place, enjoyed it, and we went for our two-hour pitch. But our two-hour pitch lasted a half hour. And here's why. Here's how the sales guy starts it. He says, so tell me about your dream vacation. What is your dream vacation? If you could go anywhere, where would it be? And we both look at each other and we go, do we have a dream vacation? And we're not faking it. We don't have a dream vacation. Being in your office is our dream vacation, dude. <laughs> and he goes, no, really. I mean, when you're just, you know, talking about where you'd like to go, what you'd like to do, what are you talking about? No, I don't think we've ever done that. And we go on vacation, we're obviously here on vacation. But, but vacation, for us, has, we've tried to cultivate the idea that vacation is more about who you're with than where you are. And, and further, I have seen people get sucked into the allure of particular places. I knew a guy, good guy in many respects, but he got sucked into the idea that every year he had to go to Bermuda. You know, I just got to work hard and I just got to have my time away in Bermuda. Okay, more power to you. But friends, your dream and my dream cannot be in some thing and particularly some material thing that can change tomorrow. This, this weekend is the annual dream what? And look, I got no, I, you know, no beef. If you were at the dream cruise, if you drove in the dream cruise, I'm not beating on you. I'm just saying all of us need to think about what we mean when we talk about what our dreams. What, what do you dream about? What is your vision? What is it that, that really makes you happy and, and turns your crank, as it were? And whatever that is, that is the seed of midlife crisis. And very often it starts very early on, often unspoken. And how do you know if you have put your dreams and your hopes and your desires and your vision in something less than what it should be? You'll know it by your reaction to the absence of it. If it's not happening the way you thought it was going to happen, well, now what? Well, now I'm in a crisis. Now I'm flailing. Now I'm, now I'm grabbing at answers to get me out of this. I counsel with people all the time who fit that exact profile. And I'm telling it to you so you can avoid it. And you young people can avoid it by adjusting, adjusting your dreams and visions in your early 20s. And all of this stuff has in common that it is based upon things that change. They can change tomorrow. But what if your dream, your vision, your hopes, your desires were based on something that absolutely cannot change? Now, how cool would that be? 
condo sales guy. You done with your pitch? I've got a pitch for you. I got a better deal than you got. I said it lasted a half hour. He, at the end of the half hour, he kept going really, you know, and then he, he said, I can't help you people. <laughs> I said, good. Thanks for, the, thanks for the condo for the week. But what, what kind of a deal is that compared to you can have all of this? Do you remember that's what, you remember that's what Satan offered Jesus? You can have all of this. But instead, you said, no, I'm going to place my dreams and my hopes and my desires on someone, something that absolutely cannot change. And of course, first of all, that's your relationship with Almighty God. You might say to yourself, well, yeah, okay, right. But I mean, I took care of that when I was six. I was in Awana. I prayed the prayer. I got a relationship with Jesus. But now we're talking about living. And my whole point in this Pursuit of Happiness series has been that our lives are not supposed to be just our agenda with Jesus sprinkled on top. But rather that Jesus is to radically alter our agenda for our lives. So that we prioritize it around Him and what He cares about. And He and what He cares about are all things that cannot change. Did you know that? They can't be altered tomorrow, come what may. A relationship with Him is eternal. But not only a relationship with Him, but the things He cares about are eternal as well. And I'm going to remind you of those in a moment. Failure to analyze it the way I'm talking, friends, means that we fall prey to the prohibitions that Jesus gave when He was on earth. You know, friends, do not, Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasure that can be destroyed, right? It's temporary. But that's what we do when we dream. It's stuff that can change. It's going to be lost. It can be stolen. It can break. Jesus, you know, gave the, the parable, the story of the way two guys built their lives. And one said, I'm going to build bigger and greater barns. And Jesus compared that to building your house on sand. Do you remember that? And when the difficulties of life came, this guy's in midlife crisis. But then there's the other guy who builds on the, on the solid rock. Can't change. It's going nowhere. Come what may. That's the way we're supposed to build our lives. That's what we're to dream about. That's what we're to have our visions about. And, and friends, I, I, can't, I can't, other than getting on my knees and begging you, do more than I've done over these last few weeks in this series to say, let us as God's people readjust our priorities and our values and our dreams and our vision. And let us place our dreams upon Him and upon that which cannot change. A relationship with him will not change, and the stuff he cares about won't change. Jesus said, Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, do you remember what he said? Will not prevail against it. The gates of hell can prevail against your dream house and your dream vacation, and your dream guy or gal, 
But Jesus says, here's something I care about. (laughs) The gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's going to last. Give yourself to, maybe give yourself to that. Maybe give yourself then to what I, Jesus, am building that will last forever. He identifies it as the church. And I ask it this way. Is his dream your dream? I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but you know, if the salesman's talking to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what's your dream vacation? What kind of vision would Jesus Christ lay out? Here's what I desire. Here's what I value. Here's what I want. I want people. He'll start there. I want a people who are like me. I want, does God not say, I want a people who are my very own. My peculiar possession. Who see me as the most valuable person in the universe. And demonstrate that they place that price tag on me by the way they order their lives. That's what I want. And really, well, how bad do you want that? Well, I gave myself for her. I love the church. And I gave myself up for her. To have that kind of people called out of the world and to me. So Jesus, what do you care about? I care about these people being reclaimed from the world. Being, as I said in the first hour, refashioned, reinvented now. So that they're conformed to my image. That's what I'm about. I'm about people who have been reclaimed from the marketplace of slavery and sin in the world. Called to myself, and I'm refashioning those people. And that's done in this thing called, his his thing called the church. I rescue them. We call it saving. Are you saved? That means are you rescued? (laughs) Are you delivered? I rescue them, I save them. And then I begin building them up. And I and I I love them and therefore they are going to be people who are characterized by love for one another. By this are all people going to know that they're my followers because they love one another. So they're in I'm I'm calling them out of the world and in community together because I've rescued them because I'm building them up. They're characterized by my character, love. They're characterized by my approach to life, namely service. I've come not to be served, but to serve, says Jesus. Now you just think about that. What if that were your dream? I want to be part of that. That's going to last forever. You want to be where the action is from God's standpoint? (laughs) It's his church. That's what he's doing in his world. Now, that's all my introduction to page six. Section two, the practice of happiness. Section one was the source of happiness. I tried to make the case that the source of happiness is from 
our God, our Creator, our Savior, and orienting our lives around what He values. But now, putting that into practice, and put me in, coach, then. Put me in the game, then. Because this is where the action is. And I want to play on your turf, God, in your game, rather than continuing to pursue the agenda that I've been going after. So where is the field where this game is played? Well, the Bible is, is extremely clear about where, where, where Jesus has focused his attention, what he cares about and what will last forever. It is very clear. When I say the action is in his church and the mission of his church, you may think that's what pastors are paid to say. And friends, I have no desire to just be another salesperson giving you another sales pitch to say, get on my bandwagon. This, this forgive the grammar, ain't Ken's bandwagon. This is Jesus' bandwagon. This is what he says he cares about. This is why he says he has you here. And everything else is subordinate to that. Your career is subordinate to that. Your family is a mission field for that. My family is a mission field for that. Now, some of you are saying, really? I mean, I know church is cool. That's why I'm here. I know church is a place you should go. Bagels are good. People are okay. It's good for my kids, as I said last week. But it's really the mission is centered in God's church? Really? Yeah. So I'm going to prove it to you over the next few minutes. And I'm going to lead us up to what the Bible teaches prior to the verses that I have on page 6, where I have Ephesians 3 and verse 10, and 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. But prior to that, let me just lay out chronologically for you how it is that God has made very clear that what he cares about is his mission on this earth being carried out through his church. When Jesus left this earth, he left instructions in Matthew 28 and Luke 24, and he said, Go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So he leaves, and he leaves those guys to begin that. Begin his mission of making followers of me, of Jesus, disciples, who are made those followers by virtue of baptizing them and teaching them. Where does the church fit into that? Well, Jesus says, go make disciples, but here's what I want you to do. Luke 24 I want you to stay in the city until you receive power from on high. So those guys leave the Mount of Olives. They go to an upper room in the city and they wait. And the fifth book of your New Testament starts there. Right? The book of Acts. And it's called Acts because it's the actions of these guys. The guys he was just talking to, this is what they did. So you've got a book about what they did. 
What'd they do? They went to the city. What city might that be? Jerusalem. And they're waiting. And Acts chapter 2 begins, and it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, I won't bore you with how this calculation is made, but that line, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, means they've been waiting in Jerusalem for a week. So after they had been there a week, waiting for the power to come from on high that Jesus promised to start the mission, the Holy Spirit comes in power. They begin to speak in tongues that they hadn't learned before, languages they hadn't learned before. People were gathered in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. That's what Luke records in Acts chapter 2. We hear these men speaking in our own language. How is that? Well, here's how it is. Jesus has just, a week before, given them instructions to go to all nations. And he is now giving them a sign that this is no longer just for Jews. It's going to go to everybody. And he's going to do this Pentecost routine three more times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And people will speak in languages they hadn't learned before. Mostly Jews in Acts 2, Acts 8, it's Samaritans, half-breed Jews. Acts 10, it's God-fearers. Those are proselytes, Gentile people who would become Jewish. And then in Acts chapter 19, just your garden variety Gentiles in Ephesus like you and me. The mission starts in Acts 2, a week after Jesus gave, and he gives this power and they speak in these languages to show this is going to be a worldwide mission. Now, here's what's important with regard to the church. Not only did the mission then begin in Acts chapter 2, but you know what else started in Acts chapter 2? The church. The very first church ever in the history of the world is formed in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit forms this one body now. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 we are all part of one body because we have all been baptized into it by one spirit. And so the church starts and the mission starts, same time. And then the mission goes forward. Jesus says it's going to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And as you read through now from Acts chapter 2 through Acts 28, here's what you find. You find the advance of the mission from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, by the time you get to Acts 28. And all along that expanse, what you have is the establishment of churches where people are called out of the world into Jesus, built up in the faith, leaders are trained, they plant, begin other churches, and Jesus' mission moves forward. That's what you find from Acts 2 to Acts 28. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, to show the progress of this mission centered on God's church, gives seven progress reports in the book of Acts, seven, to show the advance of the mission. And it always involves the church. And the churches grew in numbers, and the churches were strengthened. Seven progress reports. It's 
Some of you have a pen? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. 12 and verse 24. 16, 5. 19, 20. And chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. I'll do that one more time. Acts 2, 47. 6, 30, excuse me, 6, 7. 9, 31. 12, 24. 16, 5. 19, 20. Chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Seven progress reports. And this whole thing is centered on the expanse of God's mission through his church. So do you want to care about what lasts forever? You want to care about what Jesus cares about? That's what he cares about. Seeing people rescued, seeing people built up, seeing people conform to his image, seeing a new community, a new society now, called out of the world and to himself, his own people, in this thing called the church. Now, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Ephesians, like Colossians, like Philippians, like Thessalonians, like Corinthians, what are all of those? Those are letters written to whom? Churches. To the church at Ephesus to the churches in Galatia, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Thessalonica. Do do you start to get the idea that the New Testament is like really centered like on the church? And as the letter to the Ephesian church is laid out to God's people in that town, Paul lays out, as we've been doing in in our 930 hour, he lays out in the first three chapters God's grand plan for his world. And he starts in eternity past in chapter 1. And then he comes to time past in Acts chapter 2. You know, this is how you were saved and God has called you to do good works because you were created in Christ Jesus for those good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. And he's now formed this new body of Jew and Gentile. And the church, Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then he comes to chapter 3. And he says in verse 1, For this reason, I kneel. And then he doesn't kneel. <laughs> he says, I've got to talk some more about this really cool thing called the church. And so in verse 2 he says, Surely you have heard of the administration of God's grace given to me for you. And he goes on to talk about what I have just said. That God's eternal plan in this age is centered on his mission through his church. And he says there what I have recorded for you on page 6. His intent, whose intent? God's intent. Was that now, and you all see those three words? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And then he goes on to talk about this wisdom of God being made known not only to those on earth, 
But the angels are amazed when they look at what God has done through this new thing called the church. If you were here in our 930 hour, we, we did a hymn called Crown Him with Many Crowns. And it says, no angel in the sky, but downward bends his wondering eye at mystery so bright. Do you remember singing that? The angels look and they go, God has come to earth to die for a people. And God has gathered these people, Jew and Gentile, from every different background. There is neither male nor female, bond nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. And the angels marvel at what God has done. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. What does God think about the centrality of the church to His purposes? I have it listed for you on page 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He speaks of, there, God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church of the living God is God's household. And it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Well, see, that's not just Ken's gig. This is God's gig. This is what God cares about. You say, but isn't that just like the nebulous church? You know what I mean when I say the nebulous church? <laughs> it's everybody who's saved is part of the body of Christ. And so God's household and the church of the living God and the pillar and the foundation of the truth is not us devoting ourselves to the mission through a particular church in a particular locale, but it's, it's all of God's saved people, sometimes called the universal church. And the Bible does speak of the church that way sometimes in Scripture. It's everybody who's saved, wherever they are. But that's not what 1 Timothy 3 is talking about. How do I know that? Here's how I know. 1 Timothy 3.15 is in this context. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. If you were to look at 1 Timothy 2.1, you would see a heading just before verse 1 if you have an NIV, and it says, Rules for Worship. And then it says, I command that prayers now be made for kings and all those in authority. And it talks about how worship should be conducted when God's people come together. Prayers should be given. It talks about beginning in verse 11, beginning in verse 9 through verse 11, the role of women in the public worship of the church. You then come to chapter 3 and verse 1. And Paul, who wrote that letter to Timothy, says, Timothy... If anyone desires the office of a, of a pastor, an overseer, he desires a good work. Verse 2, now a pastor must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. And it goes on to give the character qualities of those who would lead God's church all the way through verse 7. In verse 8, it says deacons likewise. And it gives the qualifications for deacons. And then you come to verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and their wives... And then verse 12 comes back to deacons, more about deacons. And then you come to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions 
so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in, and now page six, God's household. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Friends, am I making it up that the church is of prime importance to our God? And it will last forever. And your participation in its mission will last forever. Last week, excuse me, the week before, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul says, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our, our work is going to be tested. Remember that? And there'll be six kinds of materials used there. Gold and silver and costly stones. And there'll be wood and hay and straw. And only the first three are going to last. So what do you dream about? What's your vision? What do you desire? What are your hopes? Is it on stuff that can change tomorrow? Or is it on Jesus Christ, His church, and His mission, which will last forever? condo guy, I've got a deal for you. In the middle of page six, I ask the question, okay, then put me in, coach. So what position do I play? How do I fit into this? How do you fit into this? So I think for the second time now in my series on the pursuit of happiness... I'm looking around for our community service coordinator to point him out as someone you should talk to. And he's, and he's hiding. So, so where is Rap? He's counting money. All right. He's, as I said last time, <laughs> he's serving in some other part of the building, and he really is. But Ken's ministry... His main ministry is putting people into service, into ministry. So next week, we are going to look at how you figure out what position you're going to play, but we help you do that. That's what Ken does. He helps you find your gifts and your abilities and how they fit in to the mission that God has called us all to. Now, my time's just about done. If you're not in the game, Jesus has called you out of the world into his church to use what he's given you to advance what he cares about. And, and I just say kindly, friends, that's not optional. And if you don't do it, I'm personally okay. I just want to make that clear. I'm fine. Okay? My responsibility is to do what Jesus has told me to do. I'm doing it. So I'm going to stand before the Lord, and what I want to do is prepare myself for the time when I stand before my Lord. I'm trying to help you do that as well. If you don't do it, it's not any sort of sin against Ken. That's between you and the Lord. So this is, this is nothing personal. This is not about, you know, Ken just needs more people to help him out. He's really getting a little tired and haggard. It's not about any of that. I'm absolutely fine. 
But I want every one of us to be fine on the day we stand before Jesus. And that's my job to help you do that. And this is one of the major ways that that happens. You get in the game. So see Ken about how you can do that. And we will help you, okay? Next week we'll talk some more about what the Bible teaches then about how each of us plays a crucial part in the body of Christ. This Friday is the Mud Hens game. If you want tickets, get them at the table on the way out. Beginning on September 11 and for four weeks, I'll have our newcomers orientation class so you can learn more about our church. I should have said when I announced it at the beginning, when you take that class and you end that class, I don't call you. I don't come after you. I don't say, what did you think? It's then all up to you. I give you the information. If you want to follow up, you can. If you decide you want to unite with us, that'd be great. But there's no pressure with it, okay? Let's pray. We're done. Father, thank you for your word, which tells us about your mission. Your mission begins with you, our our mission-minded God has come to seek his people, to seek that which was lost. We didn't seek you, you sought us. There is no one who seeks God. But our mission-minded God came on his mission to seek his people. And that which you seek, you always find. I once was lost, but now I have been found. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for finding me. Thank you for finding us. And thank you not only for, for finding us and giving us the absolute security of eternity with you, but thank you for giving us our roadmap for life in your word, which tells us why you've left us here. It tells us the work, the joyful work, the blessed work, the eternal work that you have called each of us to. Thank you for the clarity with which you have told us that. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which moves on my heart when I read that word, convicts me when I fall short. Thank you for the Holy Spirit in your people, in this room, who are sometimes come away wounded, cut, but you give those wounds so that you can heal them and so that you can make us better and more like Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that we will take the conviction that we have experienced here by looking at your word and and being reminded of the lesser things that we dream about and give our hopes and desires to. May we act upon it. And if that happens, this 45 minutes together will be the best time that any of us have spent other than coming to you in salvation. Because we begin to live our lives now for the purpose for which you've placed us here and to bring glory to your name. So thank you, Lord God, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of mission and of purpose and of your church. And thank you for letting us, my Lord, thank you for letting us have the privilege of participating. You don't need me. You don't need us. You let us. Help us to see it that way and thereby glorify you with our lives. Go with us, Lord, this week. Keep us safe, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.